0: Okay, Okay. Uh, without any further ado, let me hand over to Arthur Goldstuck to talk about tech, his specialty. Thank you. Thank you very much. If any of you attended my talk uh, last year, you'll recognize some of the slides, but I'm giving it a completely new perspective uh, this year. Last year I spoke about what's coming in the next a decade, the shape of the future in effect. But in the time since then, what I've discovered is that the future is not all that it's made out to be. Uh, the future in fact has many flaws and that's the theme of this talk. Looking at the flaw in the future, partly looking at radio's role in that or how that flaw will affect uh, radio. But there's a fundamental flaw in the future and it's summed up by that line above, future tuned versus future trust. Yes, we can all tune into the future. And in fact, we must tune into the future if we want to remain relevant in that future. But there's a major trust issue in that future. So one of the things I like to do is uh, offer a history lesson since this is an academic environment. So I hope you enjoy history. I'm going to take you back first 101 years to the year 1916. Does anyone remember 1916? Is Neil Johnson in the room? (laughs) Um, (laughs) That was the year they invented the very first standardized hamburger bun. It sounds crazy that it had to be invented, but no one had thought of a standardized hamburger bun before that. And that was a revolutionary invention because it led to the first fast-food franchise. And the first fast food franchise led to the entire franchise system. So that was truly a disruptive invention. The first Cloverleaf exchange, which led immediately to the first tow truck. You could actually order a tow truck off a catalogue, so it was like the Uber of its time. And then the first light switch, amazing, it's 101 years old, we're still using it today. The first condenser microphone, I'm holding one in my hand right now, Stainless steel was invented 101 years ago, and then finally the first self-service supermarket which changed civilization forever. But in fact, it was called the Piggly Wiggly. It was truly revolutionary because it led to the concept of restocking shelves as they were being emptied, and then to the concept of just-in-time inventory, which changed the entire world of manufacture and production. So, 1916 was one of the great disruptive years of all time, and you might say, "Yeah, sure, that was a crucial year. It was a disruptive year, but it was an outlier." No, it wasn't. Let's look at 1917. The portable electric dr- uh, drill, which led to the entire do-it-yourself and home improvement uh, industry. The first electric razor, the electro shave, just as famous today as Black and Decker. Not? Well, not all inventions survived. The modern zipper. Thank goodness for that. Sonar. Now, the interesting thing about sonar in this list of 1916 and 1917 inventions is that this was the only one of all the inventions I'm showing you that was related to the war, this First World War, 1914 to 1918. People tend to think that previously innovation tended to be related to the war effort. Well, the innovation of that time was only marginally related, and only one of these inventions came out of the war effort. You had cat's eye reflectors, performance shoes, the first Converse All-Stars basketball shoes were released uh, in that year. And then gift wrap. This is an amazing story, actually. The Hall brothers ran this uh, large department store in New York, and they used to wrap all gifts in brown paper just to protect it, for people to carry it home without it uh, getting soiled. They had a rush on gifts heading up to the, the festive season, and they ran out of brown paper. So in desperation, they went to look for the packaging paper in which goods used to arrive from France, just the filler paper to protect the goods. And they used that colored paper to wrap their gifts and everyone came back and said, we want that gift wrap that you guys are using. And the concept of gift wrap was born. But that in itself wasn't so disruptive. What it led to was this massively successful uh, business in gift merchandising that the Hall brothers were able to create out of the success of gift wrap. And that led to the formation of a company called Hallmark. And Hallmark, as some of you may know, actually invented Mother's Day Father's Day, and all the other random holidays that you now have to buy cards for. Well, in the digital era, hopefully that'll go away. But without the invention of gift wrap, we wouldn't have Mother's Day today. And then finally, on a more serious note, biotechnology was conceived in that year by a little-known East European called Karl Urker, who no one remembers today, but biotechnology is about to explode with the advances in medical and nanotechnology. So a hundred years ago we had disruptions that still have ramifications to this day. The message out of all of that is that disruption is not new and it's not rare. You can take any given year, as I did, two random years in history, and find amazing disruptions in those years. The big difference is that it's now all connected, which means that disruption today can disrupt entire industries within weeks, days, even hours. Whereas back then, it would take many years for the disruption's impact to be felt uh, worldwide. I'm going to show you why it is such a dramatic force in media, in innovation, and in any area of business activity today. And I'm going to show you that through three maps that show the growth of the internet over the last seven years worldwide, but particularly in Africa. This is the Facebook map of the world in 2010, showing the intensity of human connectivity. Because Facebook is the biggest network of people in the world, it also is the best proxy for mapping the interconnectivity between people. And you can see on this map that in 2010, it was mostly North America and Western Europe, um, actually the entire Europe that were the hubs of connectivity and of people connecting to each other. A bit of Southeast Asia, India fairly connected. In Africa, it was only Gauteng, really. If you look at that map closely, you'll see it all revolves around the Gauteng area that was truly connected. Fast forward three years, bear in mind that this map came out shortly after the new undersea cables connected Africa to the world. Internet costs started falling, new service providers started emerging, and new services started emerging. Three years later, that's what it looked like. Most of coastal Africa was suddenly heavily connected. India, which had been broadly connected, was now intensively connected, largely because of the drop in the cost of mobile data, a very sore point in this country. But you can see worldwide, except for China, everybody is connected. The reason China doesn't feature is because Facebook is banned in China. So it's the one country where you can't use it as a proxy for uh, connectivity. So that is 2013. Let's look at what happened in the next three years from 2013 to 2016. As the smartphone revolution took off and as connectivity options expanded, the fiber revolution began, in uh, some countries, including South Africa, and by 2016, that's what it looked like. The world today is intensely and intensively connected. People are communicating, sharing, and interacting at a level never known before in history, and this changes everything. What does the South Africa picture look like? It's driven by the smartphone revolution, And this is the growth in smartphones in South Africa since 2010. Uh, Less than 5 million smartphones in use seven years ago. At the end of last year, 29 million smartphones in use. But there's a flaw in this graph. And that flaw is the proportion of smartphone users who can afford to use the internet on their phones. And as you know it's one of the burning issues uh, today. It's a topic I write about Every few weeks, I feel sometimes that um, I'm uh, banging a drum and nobody's listening, but in fact, many people are banging the same uh, drum. The real issue is not that data is expensive. The real issue is that if you're poor, data is expensive. If you can't afford to buy a big bundle, which makes data cheap, then you're paying out-of-bundle rates or the data is coming off your airtime, and that means you're paying amongst the most expensive data rates in the world. So our campaign is in fact that data must fall for the poor and uh, airtime data must fall and out of bundle data must fall. Simply calling for data to fall plays into the hands of the operators because all they have to do is show you the graph of falling data prices over the last few years and they show you the overall data prices which have fallen dramatically over the last few years. But the moment you look at The data that is being used by the poor, you realize it's never fallen. Marginally here, marginally there. Ironically, the only uh, operator that has actually dropped the price of -of out-of-bundle data to a reasonable level has been the much maligned Telcom. 29 cents a meg versus 2 rand a meg. That's what we actually need in this country and that's what the regulator needs to enforce. Otherwise, this is what the internet future looks like. This is a graph showing the growth of Internet users in South Africa since 1994. The last of the red bars is 2016, and there are 21 million people on the Internet at the end of 2016. That means out of 29 million people with an Internet-capable device, only 21 million can actually afford to use the Internet. That's a massive indictment on the uh, mobile sector in this country. And if you look at the green bars, which is our projection for the next seven years, going up to 2025, you can see that it flattens significantly over this time. And that's entirely a function of the high cost of ad hoc or out-of-bundle data. If the regulator, as seems very likely now, I have to say, does mandate a ceiling price on uh, the cost of data, then we can expect to see that curve rising steeply again, very similar to the last five years or so of of the red uh, bars that you see. And that means that we're going to see a massive rise in new Internet users in South Africa. And that's where the theme of this presentation really comes into play. With more new users coming onto the Internet, there'll be also a rise in fear and mistrust of this environment. When people are introduced to an entirely new universe of activity and possibilities, they tend to be terrified of it. It's often too much to absorb if too much is suddenly exposed to you um, and you've never experienced that kind of, that kind of environment before. And here yeah, I'm talking about uh, people who have been isolated from technology, people who have um, been Convinced that technology is something scary and I'm talking here especially about older people older users tend to be the most fearful of Technology the only people who aren't scared of technology are kids Because they're curious and they want to explore the world So we really have to uh, put ourselves almost in the minds of children when we uh, Try to experience new technology be curious and adventurous rather than fearful but the reality is that most new users will be fearful of this new technology, and especially when you throw high-level and high-end technology at people, and there will be people in this room who who will be fearful of that new technology, and for good reason, because this is what it looks like. This was the launch of the Samsung S7 in Barcelona last year, when uh, Mark Zuckerberg walked past the audience while they were all immersed in their virtual reality headsets, and for many this was a, a photo that symbolized The future of being plugged into the Matrix. How many of you have seen the Matrix movies? I recommend it to everybody because it kind of explains how the world might actually work that we're not really uh, experiencing um, this physical world, but we're actually all plugged into a machine that's feeding these sensations to us. And that's what people saw in this image that in the future, Voluntarily, we're going to allow ourselves to be plugged into an alternative artificial uh, reality. And the overlords, like Mark Zuckerberg, will decide what we will experience, almost like social media today. The question is, can radio compete with immersion? Because what we're heading towards is entertainment becoming an immersive experience. When Coldplay did the first virtual reality uh, concert, yes, you had people in the audience, but you had more people actually experiencing the concert through virtual reality uh, headsets. However, it didn't really create a media sensation, so there isn't this massive appetite for experiencing Coldplay or any other act in virtual reality. People still prefer the real thing for now. But in the next three to five years, we're going to see such dramatic advances in artificial uh, artificial Sorry, in in virtual reality and in augmented reality. That it will become uh, photorealistic in terms of the resolution of the imagery. The speed of the uh, activity will be enhanced dramatically as uh, frame rates are improved in video. And then the storage that is required for this massive amount of information is going to become cheaper and um, far more... um, there'll there'll be a dramatic increase in the amount of storage at a far lower price. They call it Moore's law, where they talk about technology expanding in terms of capacity and falling in price. That's quite a bastardization of Moore's law, but that's essentially how it affects um, storage and um, screen resolution and the like. Right now, if you put on a virtual reality headset, you can find yourself really underwhelmed and disappointed by the experience. But by 2020, it's expected that it'll be such a lifelike experience that many people won't want to leave virtual reality. Can radio compete with that, or will it be part of that, is the question. And then, are you ready for AI radio, artificial intelligence radio? In other words, radio that's created by algorithms. This is why you should be afraid of it. This is a year ago, more than a year ago, the number of artificially intelligence startups that received funding from venture capitalists. You lose count of it, and if you look closely at this uh, picture, you'll see a category of artificial intelligence, virtual personal assistants, that's um, products like Siri, Bixby on the new Samsung phones, Amazon's Alexa, the Google Home product, and various others. All products or all devices that you can speak to and ask to compile a playlist for you, for example. And the home assistants are going to be among the options for the radio stations of the future. So either radio has to feed into these virtual assistants or it's going to be replaced by these virtual assistants. And to just emphasize that this isn't the future, This is the present. This is a phone that was launched in November last year, the Huawei Mate 9. How many of you use a Huawei? Only a few? People are shy to say they use a Huawei. I see quite a few people kind of going like this, but it's the fastest growing brand uh, worldwide. It's expected to overtake um, Apple in the next couple of years to become the second biggest uh, phone brand in the world after Samsung, and it's because Their technologies are advancing so rapidly and they're building so much into their new phones that they're starting to achieve technology leadership in certain areas. And among others, they were the first to build artificial intelligence into a standard uh, handset, but a form of artificial intelligence called machine learning, which means that the device learns from the behavior of its user and adapts itself to that behavior. A lot of smartphones Claim that, but don't actually do it. What this phone does, or claims to do, is that over over time, it optimizes the performance of apps, the battery, and other aspects of the phone according to your use of that phone. So where your typical phone expires within uh, two years, in terms of uh, being able to do almost anything, it slows down, it gets clunky, uh, things break inside, you've got to replace things, the battery life um, decreases. Typically, almost any phone. This phone promises that after 18 months, it will be a better phone than when you first bought it. The jury's still out on that because they still have about a year to go uh, on that uh, particular claim. But if it actually works, then every phone manufacturer in the world will start using that particular form of artificial intelligence. The new Samsung S8 also claims to use AI. But the best that you'll experience of that is uh, Bixby, which is its virtual assistant, its voice assistant. It's a competitor to Apple's uh, Siri, and in fact, has been uh, tested to be far more effective as an artificial intelligence assistant on your phone than Siri, but both remain irritating. Both are the kind of thing where you actually have to embarrass yourself by talking to your phone and not to somebody else with people around you. In fact, um, one of the other speakers was sitting outside earlier with an Echo Dot, which is Amazon's uh, virtual assistant device, plugged into his laptop. It's called Alexa, or at least the, the artificial intelligence in the Echo Dot is called Alexa. And to give Alexa an instruction, you keep having to say, Alexa, do this. Alexa, do that. And I felt sorry for him after a while. It sounded like he was admonishing a kid shouting at Alexa all the time. It might be artificial intelligence, but it's not very intelligent. However, it does point away to the future. And this is where it becomes scary for the uh, radio industry in particular, because you already have apps that can create your own radio station. And I'm not talking about tuning radio where you can select radio stations from around the world. I'm talking about curated content That is created automatically based on music that you've listened to in the past or even on your mood. And that's fairly standard now in apps like Spotify um, and the like. But the next generation of phones will do it for you. You won't need an app. Amongst other things, when you set up the phone, it will ask you what genre of music you like, for example. And how often you want to listen to music and do you want podcasts in between the music and it'll gradually construct a a radio station based on your preferences for talk radio, for uh, specific genres of music and for specific moods at specific times of day and you can have a radio station playing all day based on your very specific preferences. The problem with that of course is that you start finding yourself in an echo chamber of what you know rather than what's out there. And it reduces your experience of what's new. It reduces your ability to be curious about what else you can experience in the world. So it's not necessarily a good thing. Just because it's new and innovative and exciting doesn't mean it's going to enhance your life. The bottom line there is beware of the dog. Sorry, I mean, beware of the DIY. Uh, The DIY is more more dangerous than the dog because uh, people often don't know what they're doing um, when they get involved in DIY. So Black and Decker, 100 years ago, have a lot to answer for, even in the world of digital uh, automatic AI radio. And just to remind you, now I'm not going to go back 100 years, but almost, machine learning is nothing new. In 1930... They were marketing typewriters based on the fact that the typewriter adapted itself to your uh, behavior. Of course, typists were seen as uh, robots in those days anyway, so um, I'm, not, I'm not sure why they thought that da- an adaptable uh, typewriter was an enhancement over what went before. But this is almost the 1930s equivalent of the machine learning smartphone of today. And then there were other technologies, disruptive technologies, that should have changed the world. The home recording studio, and this was going to put studios out of business, but at a price of $6.98, it wasn't going to be terribly disruptive because of the low quality that was provided. And then if you want to know what was going to disrupt radio in the 1960s, the amazing wrist radio for a mere $2.98 back um, in 1966. Of course, many people wear that same radio, uh, wrist radio today. It's just called an Apple Watch. And the price is uh, more like um, $290, $298, not $2.98 if you live in the United States. In South Africa, it's about 25,000 Rand. Or at least it feels that way. Alternatively, if you look in the top corner of this uh, ad, the TV and radio noise filter ends TV troubles. Just plug in. So if you don't like what you're listening to, then you can always obviously filter it out. Today we call that the off button. And then we come to car technology. And the big question that's being asked is whether the car will be the next music player. Will a car fundamentally or um, at its heart be more of a music player and a music centre than a vehicle? Because we won't be driving cars in the future. The cars will be driving themselves. So what are we going to do in that car? Well, many things. But let's just look at a bit of the driving future. This, I believe, is when the driving future truly arrived. The first self-driven beer delivery. Because suddenly self-driving cars became relevant uh, to most people. This was a collaboration between Budweiser and an automotive technology company called Otto, which was then bought by Uber. And Waymo, which is Google's self-driving car project, accused Otto of stealing its technology, and therefore Uber of buying Otto for the technology that had been stolen from uh, Google. So you can see that there's a tremendous amount of trust in the world of automotive technology. But let's look at what comes next for the ordinary car driver. That's the Nissan Concept IDS, which is an acronym for Independent Drive System, which is a a fancy way of saying self-driving. So it's really the Nissan self-driving concept car. But look at that dashboard. Apparently, I've run out of time. Um, I'll show you that dashboard very quickly. This is a very significant aspect of the future because that's an infotainment centre with maps, music player, and even movie selection. But that's the most important part of it: the steering wheel, which is actually a voice-driven interface that's really a social media interface as well. And what it says here is, "Would you like to share these images I've captured of your family uh, to your family and friends?" So in other words, you're sitting in the back seat, having a romantic interlude, and suddenly your car shares it with your family and friends. (laughs) Not a future you can trust. A big question is, will radio fit in? Well, I believe radio will be the center of that particular universe. The problem for radio is that there's a lot of competition for attention, for real estate in that car. Among other things, the car is also going to become a wallet. This is a MasterCard concept of building a payment app into the dashboard of the car. And you can pay for petrol, you can pay for fast food, going through a drive-through, for almost anything that the car passes. Obviously toll booths, if um, e toll still exists at that time. And then this is a Jaguar that was on display at Mobile World Congress earlier this year, where they were showing how that would actually work in practice. Where MasterCard just showed the concept, Jaguar is now actually doing it. That's my finger pressing the button, and that's what came up next. That was the bill for if I had filled up that car at a petrol station in the UK. Something like 300 Shell stations in the UK now have the technology uh, built into them, and if you have it in your car, you just press a button and your car pays. For your petrol. Slight problem with that. This is called the Internet of Things, where devices communicate to the Internet on your behalf. And the Internet of Things is now integrated into your uh, credit card. And your credit card is part of the Internet of Things. So your credit card is being used for things you're not even aware of, and uh, at times that you don't even realize it's uh, being used. So there's going to be massive trust issues in terms of how the car is integrated into the payment systems and the entertainment systems and social media of the future, because so much can go wrong. Same in the world of robots. This is Pepper the robot, uh, the robot Waitron. Now 20,000 Pepper units are in use in Japan in fast food restaurants. And people generally say to me, but I want to be served by humans. Well, when you've met Pepper and you say to him, hello, Pepper, and he says to you, hello, human, you're immediately captivated and you realize that Pepper has more personality than most waitrons you've ever dealt with. <laughs> so, yes. Oops, something's missing there. Not quite sure what happened. On my screen it says, yes, robots will take your jobs. But. Um, I think artificial intelligence is going to take it. And I'm talking about people in this room as as well. And the reason uh, Neil Johnson went from being a radio DJ to being a programmer was because of this guy. The robot DJ, unveiled by Ford earlier this year. Yes, a car maker. They're playing in robots in a big way. And he helped a DJ by the name of Yoda, DJ Yoda, to launch the next generation Ford Fiesta. And they collaborated in playing DJ, but in the future, he's going to do it all by himself. That's the station manager of tomorrow. And that's the boss of the station manager. His title is Chief Robotics Officer. I know I'm out of time, but I'm going to steal a bit of extra time, because the next bit is where it gets really scary. So with these advances in technology, it's become possible to build intelligence and information into the smallest of devices and insert them into the most surprising places, like this little implant chip developed at an institute in Switzerland that gets implanted in the blood and measures enzymes coming out of your heart into your bloodstream. And there's an enzyme that's released four hours before you have a heart attack on average that this chip can pick up. So the chip detects the enzyme, sends a signal to a sensor on your skin, and that sensor then sends a signal to your smartphone to say, you're about to have a heart attack. So your heart phones you to tell you to go to hospital as quickly as possible. In the next five years, if you're an at-risk patient, your medical aid is probably going to require you to have this Um, in your body, and also for your smartphone to be linked to your um, doctor or to your medical aid. So if you don't respond, they'll send the ambulance to fetch you. And then they even have um, a device you can use at home to measure brain waves to send to your doctor if you're being tested or you're being treated for um, head injuries or for brain Problems or for mental problems. Um, I call it Fitbit for the brain, although that's not the intention of it. But if you can do all of these things, if you can do this from home and send the signal um, up to the, the hospital or to your doctor or your medical aid, and they can diagnose it from there and send information back and send an ambulance and that kind of thing. And you can implant all of this in the body as well. Why not implant a radio station? But there's a slight problem. Have you noticed... There's an increase in hacking and ransomware um, lately. What if someone holds your heart to ransom? This is the to cry ransomware. You're going to seriously want to cry if someone says, I'm going to stop your heart if you don't send me bitcoins. We're going to just fast forward a bit. To this point. The future has got many shapes. And there are many different futures that uh, we will interact with in different ways, depending on what your interest is, depending on what industry you're in, and depending on how you want to engage with that future. But right now, that future is being dreamed up everywhere in the world. This is just in Africa. This is a map of all the hubs, incubators, accelerators, and co-sharing spaces where new ideas, startups, and innovations are being planned, are being dreamed, and are sometimes failing, but also uh, succeeding across the continent. And there's a little guide here that explains whether they're government-led, civil um, society-led, academic-led, and the like. And what you find in South Africa is that most of the hubs are uh, civil society-led. When you look at Kenya, you see there's a complete mix and a heavy involvement of academic um, influence as well. And that's partly why Kenya has a more successful startup culture than South Africa because all aspects, all elements and all players in society are involved in that startup culture, whereas here it's still almost a case of um, where can we do good and promote uh, startups. All of society has to be involved in that startup uh, culture, but the flip side of that coin is that Almost anybody is becoming an innovator, and almost anyone can influence the shape of the future, and not everyone has good intentions. Last graph I'm going to show you now. This is a survey conducted by the Mobile Ecosystem Forum looking at trust in apps, in downloads, and the like. And they measured uh, eight or nine countries, including South Africa. And the key graph is the top one, which shows the extent to which people um, distrust apps that are downloaded onto their phones that they are required to use every day. So, for example, you can't get by these days, some of us, without Uber, without Facebook, without Twitter uh, on our phones. So we download them and give up a huge amount of personal information because we um, are obliged to give it up in order to use the app. But we don't necessarily trust the app, we don't like the idea. So they measured the extent to which people don't like the ideas, and guess which country came out the lowest in not liking it. In other words, we have the highest trust in these apps that demand all of our information, and that's South Africa. And not just marginally, by a long distance. If you look at the shape of that curve, South Africa is at the end. Only 27% of respondents don't trust these guys who are demanding all their personal information. The reason for that is because we were isolated for so long and we are kept from what's new for so long. For example, Amazon and Google haven't released their um, Alexa and Google Home devices in South Africa because we're too small a market. So we, we become desperate for these things. So when Pokemon Go was released last year globally but not in South Africa, we all went to illegal sites and downloaded it. We trusted illegal sites for this app that could actually take over our phone and send someone personal information and banking information. But we were so desperate for what's new that we were willing to trust even the illegal sites. That's why we feature the lowest of all these countries in this uh, lack of trust barometer. As more people come on board the internet who've never used it uh, before, you're going to see that picture changing dramatically. We won't be the trusting society that we were um, in the past, and that's actually a good thing. Because we're entering a trust economy, where trust is the currency that will drive uh, innovation and uptake of new products and new services. But it's important to remember that it's not an add-on, it's not a bolt-on, it's not something you can add on to your new internet radio station after you've built it, when you conceptualise that radio station, that product, that innovation. You've got to consider trust as part of the concept. Trust has to be part of your design. Thank you very much.